Welcome to this moment in democracy. I'm Saladin Ambar. This episode was recorded on February 10th, 2023. Today, I'm speaking to Professor of Law Sahar Aziz about the controversial firing of an adjunct professor at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota, and the debate over academic freedom. Sahar is a chancellor, social justice scholar, and Middle Eastern legal studies scholar at Rutgers University Law School. She's the founding director of the interdisciplinary Rutgers Center for Security, Race, and Rights, which can be found online at csrr.rutgers.edu. And she is the author of The Racial Muslim, When Racism Quashes Religious Freedom. Professor Aziz, welcome. Good to have you here. It's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Well, look, it's it's really our pleasure to have you here from Rutgers Law. It's a terrific place, and uh, we thank you for your work. Uh, before we get into these questions, particularly the ones about Hamlin University, could you just share a little bit about what the Rutgers Center for Security, Race, and Rights does? It is the first and only civil rights center at an American law school that focuses primarily on the civil and human rights of Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities. Uh, in the United States, but it does so through an interracial, interfaith, and uh, transnational approach. So while we look at Islamophobia and Orientalism and anti-Asian hate in the U.S., we also explore how that is connected to anti-Black racism, anti-Latinx racism, xenophobia, and how what happens abroad affects the communities, the Muslim, Arab, and South Asian communities that we center in our work. Well, that's terrific. We appreciate you sharing that with us. And folks who are interested could obviously uh, check out the website for Rutgers Center uh, for Security, Race, and Rights. So thank you for sharing that. Now on to this controversy. In just a few sentences, can you please recap the incident that happened at Hamlin University? It was Unfortunately, a um, misunderstanding that turned into a national controversy. Uh, Effectively, you had an adjunct professor, woman, who's also Latina, who is a a global art historian teaching a class online at Hamline University, which is a private school in St. Paul, Minnesota, And it is a liberal arts school. It has 40% of its students uh, reportedly are Pell Grant recipients. Uh, And it was one of the first universities in Minnesota to allow women to enroll. So this is a place that has kind of a a commitment to diversity, equity, and inclusion. It is also uh, employs a African-American woman as president and an African-American man as the executive uh, vice president of DEI, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. So that's the backdrop of the university. Uh, So the professor in showing various art paintings and art products uh, across the world included a painting of a Persian painting from the 14th century that showed the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and showed his face and the angel Gabriel. And this is extremely controversial. And in in some cases, to some Muslims, heretic, to show the face of the prophet. Now, she informed the students that she would be showing a painting that some of them may find offensive. She explained to them that her intent was to expose them to various types of Islamic art. And this was a very famous, a Persian painting that many people who study that area and that era 
are familiar with. And as a result, uh, she allowed students, again, they're online, to leave the class with no penalty or to log off. And no one complained or no one expressed concerns and no one uh, removed themselves from the Zoom call. And then she taught the painting and explained the historical context and explained you know, why it was significant uh, politically, artistically, et cetera. After the class, uh, one of the students who is Sudanese American uh, female, this is based on news reports, uh, complained to the administration and believed that this was Islamophobic. She felt unsafe, she felt unwelcome. And an important fact is that the Black students and the Black Muslim students had been complaining about other completely unrelated acts of Islamophobia by especially by peers. And so my assessment is this may have been kind of the straw that broke the camel's back figuratively, is that you had a student, a section of the student body that was already highly sensitive, was already feeling marginalized, and was already feeling as if no one was uh, caring about what their experiences were. And as a result, uh, I think the administration was trying to do the right thing and taking these complaints seriously and responded quite uh, assertively in denouncing what happened and claiming that it was Islamophobic. But unfortunately, the administration appears not to have done their due diligence and not to have even spoken to the adjunct professor to ask what happened, right? What's your side of the story? Because according to the students, who this, the student who was in the class then was able to get other Black Muslim students who were on other Muslim students to organize around this issue. But again, it appears that there was only one side of the story that was told, which may have been valid in terms of the impact on the student. But I think there's a difference between the intent of the professor and the way she handled it, which I think by all reports was quite professional, right, sensitive, and uh, was in no way based on malice or, or Islamophobia. But part of what we do in universities is we learn about all sorts of things and information so that we can expand our horizons. And some of that may implicate uh, our religious beliefs. Well, yes, um, certainly uh, a university education, particularly a liberal arts education, is uh, practically inherently designed to challenge uh, our worldviews and to, in many ways, make us uncomfortable. Um, and I guess this raises a host of questions about other uh, potential possibilities for other religious faiths and or political worldviews in terms of uh, images or, you know, ideas that are presented that one may find offensive. Uh, uh, and so, uh, but, you know, I think, um, You've made the point, I think, could you just expand upon the idea of what you refer to as the systemic adjunctification of university faculty and how that played a role in this uh, experience at Hamlin? There's a lot going on in the background uh, at the national level, and this controversy just brought all that to the head, to its head. So on the on the one hand in the background is 20 years of systematic Islamophobia from the Republican Party, from many social conservatives, from uh, the 
President, the former president of the United States, Donald Trump, with his Muslim ban and many of his explicitly Islamophobic statements while he was running for office, and arguably even among some Democrats who uh, support policies that disproportionately harm uh, Muslim immigrants uh, and Muslims abroad in foreign policy. So you have a generation of college students who, like, who identify as Muslim, who the only world they've known is this post 9-11 normalization of suspicion of Muslims, of suspicion of Islam, and of marginalization of Muslims' uh, lived experiences of discrimination. The other national trend that's happening, which has been going on sadly for almost 50 years now, and I talk about this in my article that was published in Al Jazeera on January 22nd, 2023. Yes, that's the one. Yes. The Hamline controversy and the real threat to academic freedom is that since the 1970s, there has been a very systematic and incremental defunding of public universities meaning that universities now have to fundraise for at least 70 and arguably more than 70% of their revenue. And that funding is coming from tuition. Because if you look at uh, the numbers from the, uh, there's various studies that I cite in my piece, shows that in 1970, 1969, approximately 78% of faculty were tenure or tenure track earning a living wage as compared to less than 50% now. And in some colleges or disciplines, it's even less than 50%. And the reason is because state funding in the 1970s covered over 70% of public university budgets. And now that's only 34%. So what you have is this significant pressure on public university administrators to make up for that difference. Now, part of that is certainly through tuition, largely through tuition, and that then transforms students into customers. And that is kind of the third trend that's happening, as opposed to students who are having to defer to the university that hires experts to teach them and to respect how they teach rather than tell them, this is what I want you to provide me because you are effectively no different than my electricity company or my phone company, or you know, the, the restaurant that I go and purchase food from. And right. that mentality is kind of exasper- exacerbated by another phenomena, which is this, this commercialization of um, you know, customer service in, in terms of anything that's private sector. So, and, and everything that's online. So students are also used to having everything at their fingertips. They're used to having everything about them in terms of their, their, their private transactional and commercial dealings. So that is creating an environment where if an administrator wants to do so, either out of ill intent or perhaps as an outright error and mistake, they can easily disregard uh, the professor, because most of the professors now, and especially in the social sciences and humanities, again, we we're seeing numbers over 50% are adjuncts. They pay, they're getting paid a few thousand dollars per class. These are people with PhDs who are unable to find tenure lines because universities have cut tenure lines because they can't afford anymore to have as many tenure uh, professors and tenure track professors. And as a result, according to the American Federation of Teachers, uh, 25% of adjunct professors rely on public assistance, 
and 40% can't even meet their basic needs. And these are professors who are racking up in terms of teaching classes. They might teach three or four classes a semester. Each one might pay at most $5,000. That's not even a living wage, even though they're working full time. And take that on a mass scale. So the fact that this professor in the art, global art history class was an adjunct allowed an administrator, in this case in Hamline, to not have to give the professor kind of the basic due process rights that are required and would be mandated if they, that person was tenure or tenure track, because also the professors would protect her. Because right. adjuncts are often physically disconnected from the tenure line uh, professors. They're usually not part of the faculty community. And so that makes them even more vulnerable to any type of mistreatment by administrators. It, uh, thank you for that. That's a very methodical and thorough and I think really helpful way of uh, bringing us to the present moment. So thank you for that. Um, there's so much uh, to unpack and, and consider in that. Um, is there anything that uh, this professor, from what you've seen, read, uh, could have done differently to, it seems that she she did everything reasonable in terms of providing opportunities for students to opt out and uh, an opportunity, uh, a warning uh, about what was to be presented and so on. Is there anything she could have done? Because I think what we're looking at is a kind of, um, you know, cancellation, if you want to use that word, of a particular set of ideas in academia that, um, you know, uh, are suggestive of just presenting historical facts and images. So uh, what could she have done? Does the administration have anything other than saying you are not allowed to show images of the prophet? Uh, prophet Muhammad, are you, uh, is there any other thing she could have done? I don't think she could have done this, but this is the type of experience where online teaching is the least conducive to the difficult conversations that professors need to have with their students when they're addressing sensitive topics. Anytime you're going to talk about something that's historical or contemporary that you know is may be perceived as offensive, hurtful, misunderstood in a way that causes students to feel you know, mentally distressed, professors should be trained because our job is to create an environment that is conducive to learning. But that does not and should not require that they don't teach the truth or they do not provide students with exposure to different perspectives that may or may not offend them. But what it does require is a certain pedagogical skill set to anticipate it, right? And I think she did in terms of what she put in her syllabus. I think she did in terms of what she said on Zoom. Uh, my understanding from the reports is this was a class that met at eight o'clock in the morning um, and it's online. And it sounds as if she may have never even met her students in person. Mm -hmm. And so I can see how that is a recipe for a lot of misunderstandings. Um, so, no, I, I don't think in this case, at least with the facts that we know, this was clearly an error by the administration. And as I say in my op-ed, the error is not that the administration listened to the students and took their grievances seriously. And their real grievance wasn't the class, because remember, there's only one student that was within the group of Muslim students that were upset. Yes. And the others what their grievance was had nothing to do with the class. It was that this 
campus and they were talking more about this other students was not making them feel welcome in a way where they could learn. They were having to deal with all sorts of various microaggressions, macroaggressions, and just feeling that they they were not in an environment that was conducive to their learning. There's another really important fact that people don't know unless they are familiar with the Muslim communities across the country and, and where they're populated. Uh, St. Paul, Minnesota, the Twin Cities, has the largest Somali-American diaspora in the United States, over 300,000. And they experience even more Islamophobia than uh, other Muslims who are not Black, because they deal with anti-Black racism and they deal with Islamophobia. Uh, They're also a a socially conservative community wherein you will find a very high percentage of women choose to wear the hijab to cover their hair, which then marks them as Muslim. So this is a city that is already uh, full of people who know what it's like to be Black and Muslim and that that usually does not uh, produce uh, welcoming uh, experiences. So that's something else that I think caused, for example, the Council on American Relations uh, chapter there to be very responsive. It allowed the student to mobilize because, again, it it matters to these students and something broader is happening. Well, yes. And and, and that, you know, leads into uh, another question, which and I don't mean to compare oranges to apples or what have you, but uh, with respect to efforts to censor critical race theory. It seems very much that um, universities continue to be, colleges continue to be uh, focal points for not only debates about uh, what may or may not be seen as controversial, but kind of uh, war zones, ideological war zones where folks are attacked uh, and ideas are attacked um, with respect to race, uh, religion, identity, and so on. how do you see or do you see the uh, anti-critical race theory legislation? I'm thinking about Florida right now, but certainly other places are, are not immune to that uh, that kind of discourse and, and effort. Do you see a, a connection to some of what, what took place at Hamlin? So answering that question requires me to disclose some uh, facts about my own research and my own positionality. So first, I am a critical race theorist as a legal okay. scholar. Uh, Second, I also study authoritarianism in the Middle East, which is a Muslim-majority region. Uh, And uh, third, I am someone who is highly sensitive to both the harms that are caused by hate speech that is not illegal, it is not criminalized, but it is extremely harmful to minorities. But also, I'm sensitive to the dangerous path towards authoritarianism that is triggered once you start censoring speech. So that is a very delicate balancing act. And my position is that you should not censor professors. And academic freedom is the bastion of intellectualism and intellectual advancement and innovation And the university is precisely the place of all places in the nation where ideas should be hotly debated, where people should 
get so engaged that they do all this work to research and debate and bring up the countering points so long as it's based on facts, it's based on a scientific method of research, it's based not on opinion or ad hominem attacks uh, or false information. So, for example, in the Hemline case, which again, I, I think would never have gotten as far as it got if someone had just talked to the adjunct professor. Okay. But if, for example, you're in a situation where someone, a professor is bringing something up that's heavily controversial, uh, the response is not to prohibit them from doing it. Now, if students don't want to agree, they don't have to. If they don't want to attend a program that brings in a speaker that offends them, they don't have to. In fact, what they should do is they should get their own program and bring a different speaker that challenges those ideas. Because especially once minority students go down the path of censoring people who are racist, people who are sexist, people who are Islamophobic, people who are anti-Semitic, people who you know have hateful ideas, they're opening the door and they're creating a precedent that now the university could say, well, other people are offended by what you're saying. People are offended when you bring a speaker that talks about how devastating the legacy of slavery has been on black communities, that talks about American imperialism and European imperialism in the Middle East, that talks about um, the violations of international law that the U.S. may have <laughs> conducted when it occupied Iraq and Afghanistan. These are all, everything that matters and is worth discussing is usually controversial. So that's the challenge I think of any administrator is trying to find that balance where students feel that I'm welcome here, not because the administrator's job or the professor's job is to make every student be popular. It's that pedagogically, if students feel that they are targeted and attacked, they, they're, they're shut down. They can't learn and they have a right to be able to learn. So this is where administrators get the big bucks, right? And professors get paid to, to figure out how do I balance uh, freedom of thought, freedom of speech, pursuit of truth, intellectualism, and at the same time, create an environment, a learning environment that allows students to feel that they're members of the community, that they have a right to speak and engage. They do not have a right to impose their views on everyone, right? They do not have a right to require the university or a professor or even another student to agree with them, but they do have a right to be an equal participant in the debate and the controversy. And so this is where the challenge lies. Um, but to talk about critical race theory, I think the problem with that legislation mm -hmm. is it is clearly an anti-free speech legislation. This is it's bad faith. It has nothing to do with anything but uh, censorship. And the irony, and it's somewhat laughable because it's so tragic, that the very people that are pushing for anti-critical race theory are the ones who proclaim politically when they're running for office, that they adamantly support free speech and they adamantly support individual liberty and they adamantly support uh, you know, uh, freedom of religion. And yet they're doing the exact opposite simply because they don't agree with the content of the speech. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know, I am 
curious as to what you think, and I don't mean to pander to you, uh, but you you seem to me very evidently to, to be a very courageous professor in terms of what you've taken on uh, in your research and in your teaching, but not all uh, professors or administrators, I think we can say, are, are courageous. To what extent do you think this climate has produced, uh, let me give you a good legal term here, a good uh, legal term would be a chilling effect on free speech in the classroom? Do you find your colleagues uh, or others, uh, you know, saying, you know, it's just not worth it. I'm just going to do as you said, um, cater to the consumer and provide the blandest meal I can uh, because um, it may they may not go home raving about it, but it's going to be safe and easy. How about that? Is that is that what's happening? Do you see that? So the chilling effect has always existed in the United States for minorities, for women, for immigrants. So the, the chilling effect is effectively the consequence of disparities in power right? and inequities in meaningful freedom in practice. So I just want to explain that, uh, that communities are always feeling chilling effects because if you are an employee who doesn't have job security and you want to tell your boss a critique that would help the business be better, if you're worried you'll be fired, you're not going to make that critique, even if you have the best of intentions. Now, what we're seeing now is a chilling effect of people who historically have had power, like professors, Mm. uh, like uh, people who are white men who are not accustomed because of their status to have their speech chilled in any way. And I think Mm. that's one of the reasons why you have this anti-critical race theory movement is because many of the people pushing for it are in positions where they're being called out for being racist or they're being called out for being sexist or or homophobic, et cetera. And they're realizing that that's not the type of experience they want. Uh, I don't agree with their solution. So in the university context, I think the best way to approach it is to take shared governance seriously. So with the commercialization of the university, you've also had a shift of power from faculty to administrators and their staff, and their staff are their employees and they can get fired. So when you have tenured professors who are governing most of the matters that affect a university, at least those who are related, especially to the academic component and the learning component, I think they, we together can make a commitment to say, I don't agree with you. I can even say, I find what you write about so repulsive, but as long as what your, your methodology is sound and I have the chance to challenge you and challenge your methodology and have an alternative event or even a legal protest that doesn't disrupt you or silence you, but at least just makes note that I think you know, your method is flawed, your conclusions are, are inaccurate and so on. But I think we can make a commitment as colleagues to say we all benefit from that system and teach our students that and say, if we don't have these debates in the university where we are required by the process of peer review and where we have the privilege of resources to labs and 
libraries and books, then where else will we have them? I'll tell you where, on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok, where it is the complete opposite, right? Where everything is out, either outright false, oversimplified, and completely misconstrued. So I think that professors need to take, as a collective, need to take more um, interest, and it's very self-interested too, but for in saying we need to take control of that, that these issues within our respective universities, the tenured professors, and also make this problem of adjunctification their problem. Because if only 10 or 20% of classes are taught by tenured professors and the rest are taught by adjuncts, the administration has complete control. And the administration is in a, has its own conflict of interest because they need donors and they need tuition. And if they don't get donors and tuition, the university will shrink or shut down. So that's a whole different issue that everybody has an interest from the students and the alumni and the professors and the administrators, which is to demand that states and the federal government return back to funding universities at the levels that they funded them in the 1970s, where we're talking about 70%. Well, I think everyone... Uh, at Rutgers or any major research university would, would say amen to that. There's, a, I think, a great focal point of agreement there. Sahar Aziz, thank you so much for joining this moment in democracy. What a rich conversation, uh, an enlightening one. Uh, much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Today's podcast has been brought to you by the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Eagleton is a nonpartisan research unit of Rutgers University, New Brunswick. This moment in democracy was made possible in part by the generosity of Gerald and Kiko Harvey and Eagleton's many supporters. To support Eagleton's work or sign up for its newsletter, click the links in the description. To learn more about the Institute, visit eagleton.rutgers.edu and follow Eagleton on social media. Thanks for joining us on This Moment in Democracy.